Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to Dwell, a Circe Institute podcast featuring conversations by and for homeschooling moms. I'm your co-host, Renee Mathis, here with my other co-host, Karen Kern, and our special guest today, who is Anne-Marie McCollum. And Anne-Marie, why don't you go ahead and get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself? All right. Uh, Well, thank you, ladies, so much for inviting me to uh, have this conversation with you all. Uh, Just a little bit about myself. I am a homeschool graduate from way back in the early years of homeschooling. And uh, I am a homeschool mom to five. I have graduated three now as of this year. So down to just two at home. I have kids spanning from 23 down to eight years old. And um, I uh, also run a school group uh, tutorial program and a, a small forest school as a part of that. So I thought that, um, Renee, um, Renee, I thought Anne-Marie would be a really great guest to have on here because I know that she did a six-week intensive for Circe on uh, getting kids outside. I think you called it the love of place. Is that what you called it? And so, and yes. so I thought it's for two reasons. It would be great to have this conversation because here it's been so hot this summer And in the summertime, we don't really get outside that much. You know, it's some days it's too hot to go to the pool. So here we are. It's getting a little bit cooler. People are getting outside. And I I think it's really important that uh, for young moms particularly to make it a priority in the homeschool day to have time planned to be outside. And so I want to talk a little bit about that, why it's so important. And also because I, in my experience and some questions I've seen come up in the last week on different homeschool Facebook groups that I'm that I'm part of. I have seen questions about getting four and five-year-olds into workbooks. And there was one question about a four-year-old boy who's not very uh, dexterous with his handwriting and wondering how to encourage him to be able to hold a pencil and make those letters that curve better. And my alarm bells went off and I thought, oh dear, let's just let them play outside. But I know that there's a balance. We still have to have some learning. But, um, and then I have a five-year-old granddaughter who I'm helping homeschool and she is all about it, all about the workbooks, all about writing and doing all the, what she thinks is fun things. But there again, 
I think it's really important that we say it's a great thing to get outside. And I know that there are really great reasons for that and you've done research on it. So I wanted to have you on and share your wisdom experience with us. I also have a really quick question before we get started while we're defining our terms. Anne-Marie, what is a forest school? Well, um, that's a great question. And it kind of depends on where you are. It it originated in uh, Europe. Here in the United States, we've kind of gravitated to this younger and younger in school. Karen, as you mentioned, it's a constant push to get kids in school. Um, In Europe, children still don't typically attend school before seven. Forest schools are very common, however, and it is an all outdoor school for kids. So you drop your child off maybe at nine in the morning, you pick them up again at two and they will be outside the whole time. Uh, There's no formal learning in the terms of workbooks or formal instruction, but I would argue that it is filled with learning. So I would say it's not um, a balance of we have to balance the workbook learning versus the the play outdoors, but that they're both learning experiences, just very different ones. Um, Here in the U.S., forest schools look a little different. The first one was um, opened up in Vashon Island uh, out in Washington State, um, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. And they've sort of popped up in various uh, iterations, and it could mean anything from three to four hours outdoors where there are guided lessons, or it may simply be a protected time and space for children to be outdoors and explore a natural environment. And they can run five days a week, two days a week, one afternoon. So there's a lot of, I guess, um, variability in, in what it defines. So what age group are they for mostly? You know, my um, six-year-old grandson went to one last year. Um, are they mostly six to 12? So in in Europe, again, it would run two, two, three years old up to six or seven until they're ready for formal school. Mm-hmm. Here and I know in Canada, there are um, forest schools for children as young as eight months <laughs> from age. Wow. Um, right. Yes. So I, a lot of groups that I'm familiar with that are, are just developing are for older ones. So they're targeted for the homeschool community. So there may be a one day a week for six to 12 year olds and, um, you know, giving them that that alternate opportunity for the outdoor time. But typically, I would say it, it's a three to seven year old is probably the most common. Okay, you know Emily Hill. She yes. was on here with us previous to a couple of weeks ago, and um, she runs a four school among other schools out there. So we're kind of familiar with them. But I, I was like Renee, wondering if it's a formal term or an informal term, meaning a wide range of opportunities and ages. So that's helpful. So Anne Marie, what what have we lost by keeping kids inside more and more and longer and longer? Oh, so much. (laughs) Um, As I said, I was uh, homeschooled, I don't know, beginning probably in 82, 83. Um, I'm sure both of you ladies too probably grew up in a time where we still spent a lot of time outdoors. The um, fear culture was not as dominant. You have probably had a lot of freedom. I know my childhood memories 
Um, I feel like I was formed by two things in my early childhood, story and nature. And we hit a lot on story <laughs> um, in the in classical education world, how important those types, those ideal types, those, those stories are for our kids. But the nature, I, I would argue, is equally as important. And I would probably say for three main reasons. Um, first and foremost, we just can go to scripture and over and over the scriptures tell us, how do we, how do we know God um, through his creation, right? So uh, the, the number one thing I would say is time out in nature that is just quiet observation or not even quiet, but free observation, the ability to just explore and experience things is, is time where children are coming to know about God in a very poetic knowledge way, an indirect, non-instructive uh, way, but the way that God intended. I mean, Christ taught with parables for us to truly gain knowledge of the kingdom of God. I think we have to understand the, the natural elements that he created in order to reveal those to us. So I would say that would that is one thing. I also think that as, as educators, we're constantly, you know, what, what is the biggest struggle I think we tend to come to it when we're working with our students and it's attention. If, if we can't, if, if we can't attend to something, we can't ever know it, right? When we can't really learn without attending. Experience with nature, contemplating natural environments, exploring, physically touching those things. Um, promotes attention in a way that almost nothing else does. And I think we all know that kind of in our heart and our gut. But what I'm so fascinated by is over the last 20 years, there is, there's a lot of scientific research that's being done that's now backing that up. So <laughs> it doesn't just have to be, I know this is good for them, but we can actually see uh, students who are allowed, even older students who are allowed to, just go outside for a while, will have a better attention to whatever their tasks are, whatever their learning is. It, it's, it's a calming effect. Um, it, it focuses us. And as little children, we don't really have to give them that. We just have to not destroy it, right? I mean, what I, all of us have seen, all of our little ones, they love it. We're the ones that take it from them. Um, in our hurry. So uh, I would say attention is a, is a huge one. And, um, and then the other thing that I really am fascinated with is we talk a lot about wonder and um, the importance of wonder. And as Christians, we know that's an important um, ability, skill, I guess, is to just stand in awe um, and I think nature produces that better than anything else to stand in awe of the changing color of a tree or the ant that's carrying uh, my students just an hour ago, we're, we're watching this ant that had this huge thing on his back and, and they're just talking about, wow, it's amazing. This ant can carry this heavy load and he's so tiny, but it also the, as I said, that the science is really 
showing the vagus nerve. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the vagal response and the vagal nerve, vagus nerve, it kind of runs all the way from our tongue all the way down our spine. How do you spell that? Uh, V-A-G-U-S. Okay. It's responsible for a lot of things within our body having to do with relaxation, stress levels, um, a lot of our uh, just overall health. And they have discovered that experiencing wonder and awe directly stimulate, stimulate the vagus nerve, which produces empathy in humans. <laughs> so we're looking to, to create, um, or not create, if we are looking to um, raise children who, who can love their neighbor, just being outside actually physically helps their bodies gain that ability. Um, there, there are studies on the reduction of narcissism and <laughs> people who spend outdoor time when they're young because they believe this stimulation of the vagus nerve. So I just, to me, that's fascinating. <laughs> so it gets me excited. I would think that it also takes the emphasis off of yourself, you know, thinking of empathy and narcissism um, and sets you in a really big, potentially beautiful place where you feel the appropriateness of not how small you are, you know, but I mean, in, in comparison to the world around you, your place. And so maybe that's why you called it for the love of place. It kind of orders, it orders you rather than you being the center of your universe in your house, making everything work towards that way you want it. You take yourself for soul and it's outside and you're, you become part of something else, which is helpful. Absolutely. Just helping a young child to see the helplessness of a creature, a snail or, or the ant or whatever it is. And, you know, I still occasionally have a kid who I run across who suddenly sees a bug and stomps it. And I just go (laughs) my heart, (laughs) but you know, that's one of the things when they're out there and they are in this place that doesn't just, isn't theirs completely they're sharing it with all of these creatures there does become this awareness yes that i am i'm sharing this space and um i want to take care of this space for these for the sake of these animals that god has made as well and um i think that familiarity also right we're drawn to and we come to love what we become familiar with that those things that we we revisit over and over. And that's another reason talking about the place. I'm uh, spent a lot of time over the last six or seven years. We nearly, I I grew up middle Tennessee my entire life. My parents are here. My in-laws are here. All of my siblings are here. And about seven years ago, we almost picked up and moved to Montana. And there were a lot of good reasons to do it. And um, I blame Wendell Berry. (laughs) (laughs) for not doing it. Um, I got really convicted that I shouldn't do that. And my daughters who said, as soon as we turn 18, mom, we're coming back here. (laughs) But I, um, I think there is something about that coming to love these small little places and becoming just so familiar with them that they become home and 
And there's just that deeper connection with a place for us. So I have a question. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, let's, let's call her the typical homeschool mom, if there is such a thing. And I can see on the one hand, what you're saying is so encouraging because we all know we've been homeschooling ourselves. One of the biggest hurdles homeschool moms have is, am I doing enough? Um, there's only so many hours in the day and I've got to cover all of these materials and these workbooks and these, you know, everything. And now you're telling me, I just have to send them outside. You know, that's kind of freeing <laughs> on the one hand. It's, it's a little bit scary maybe, but, but I like that. But now I'm thinking this typical homeschooling mom who says, yeah, that sounds great. If you live in the beautiful Colorado Rockies, or if you live in the farmland of middle Tennessee, you know, but I am in the suburbs of Houston, Texas with concrete all around me. And I look out my kitchen window and I see my neighbor's brick wall. How am I going to get my kids outside and not have to disrupt our whole family life every day to do that? So I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit, but what, what advice do you have for that? No, that's, you know, that's a, um, a definitely a valid concern. I would say that on very rare occasions, do you not have access to some tiny little piece of outdoors. It may not be the glorious views of the Grand Canyon. Um, I, I look out my yard and it's just grass and trees. It's not super exotic <laughs> or exciting, but there's so much to see within that. Um, there's a book called The Forest Unseen, uh, a man who spent a year going out into East Tennessee. He picked a little space about a meter circle and he just randomly went out there a few times a month no schedule and he he just observed this one little meter of of ground and he wrote an entire book on the ecosystem of this one little meter <laughs> and that's something I actually will do with my kids a lot we get hula hoops and I will give them a hula hoop and tell them go find a spot put your hula hoop down and see what can you find in that hula hoop and write it down if they're old enough. You know, if they're little, they're just observing and sharing with a, a buddy. But um, I think it was Julian of Norwich who one of one of her great re revelations was about a and I can't remember if it was an acorn or a hazelnut, but it was some kind of a nut. And this was this divine revelation of, of that the entire world was contained in this one little one little nut that we can all of God's mysteries are there. So I would say you don't have to have big spaces. You can just go out with a hula hoop and a little spot of grass and look and see, or if you've got a tree in your neighborhood, I think routines are probably, or consistency over time is, is very valuable. So maybe there's a tree in your neighborhood somewhere and you just make a habit that you're going to observe that tree over the years and notice the changes in it and what happens to it. And it doesn't even have to be in your yard. <laughs> um, but that alone is an attention to something. It's, it, there's, there's this habit of consistency. There's this, you come to love this tree. You come to know so much about it. And there's so much that unfolds just in, in watching that one tree. So you know, if you don't have any yard, I mean, if you're in an apartment, then I say get some plants, 
get a few plants, make, you know, get a box of, and um, put a few plants or get an aquarium, a terrarium, not water. Don't mess with fish. They're, <laughs> they're, trouble. they're hard to keep away. But um, I, my son, my son, I created a monster with my oldest. He's, uh, he's, he's obsessed with reptiles. And at 23, he's moved out, but moved into a new place. that's really small. And a lot of his animals moved back home with me for a little while. Um, but he just loves having these creatures. And so we have terrariums around the house right now with frogs and snakes. And <laughs> so even just a small terrarium with a frog can be, um, enough and then make it a point to once a month, we're going to go to the park or we're going to go, you know, find what is, what is the unique nature uh, elements to your place? I do think that's really important for me. Tennessee has over 800 waterfalls. So I love that. And so every summer, my kids and I make it a goal to visit as many as we can. And to me, I will always connect waterfalls with Tennessee. I know North Carolina has fabulous waterfalls. There are places, but for me, that is a defining element of my place is these waterfalls. So um, I would say it's a balance of both of those. Take, make the effort to go do that field trip, but, but you can also just go, go look at a plant in the yard or a hula hoop on the ground and it unfolds a lot. That is helpful. Thank you. Do you have any other favorite books that you want to share with us? I do. Um, so I highly recommend if, if, if you're a, a teacher or a parent and you're looking for things that you can read with your kids that will spark some ideas, um, Bird Baylor, and it's spelled B-Y-R-D, Baylor. She uh, was a naturalist and children's author. She wrote, I don't know, a dozen or so of the most fabulous children's books. And most of them are games to play. She has a book called The Favorite Things. And it's this game you play about your favorite color, but it's not okay to say red. It needs to be the flash of red on the breast of the robin as it pops out to get its worm. It's a very specific and it's, she presents these beautiful ways of um, being in nature that equip you by simply reading it. I mean, if you read it to your kid, they're gonna wanna run out and do, you know, find their own secret place. That's another one of hers. Um, she has one about finding your own special rock and the importance. Um, everyone needs a rock and what to look for in your rock. And um, I mean, it just to me, if you can't get any other books, her books are fabulous. Um, the, the other one for kids that I love is called Rocks a Boxin', <laughs> which is kind of a funny name. And it's just a story about some children who find a little empty lot and play this town game in their childhood and then it follows them into adulthood and their fond memories of going back to visit this little place rocks a box and and every time I read that to a group of kids I mean they're off building their villages and it's 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 all you need to launch them into if 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 you don't have a child who naturally just imaginatively comes up with that kind of play it's a good jumper get some kind of into that thought process. So um, for adults, the thing that I recommend the most um, is Rachel Carson. She was also a very prolific 
writer of naturalist books, um, a lot about the ocean, but she wrote a book called The Sense of Wonder. And it is a very short book. And I think it's on Audible for free. It takes about 35 minutes to listen to. It's beautiful. I mean, the pictures are gorgeous if you can find a used copy, but I wouldn't pay a lot of money for it. Um, it, it, I think it more than anything gives permission (laughs) for, for that mom who feels I can't get all this done. I need to do these things or that I need to be more qualified to do this. I need to know what kind of tree it is if I'm going to take my child out there. And I, I disagree with that wholeheartedly. I think the only thing you need is a very humble and open spirit um, and the ability to say, you know, I don't know. We should figure that out. <laughs> um, but I, I really encourage any um, parent to at least listen to that once. It's, it's beautiful. It's her reminiscences of taking her nephew out And um, she just speaks of the importance of every child having at least one adult in their life to experience nature. And um, I think inspires us to kind of maybe take back the wonder we sometimes lose. (laughs) If you're really into the science of it or, or you need some justification in terms of physical and those types of things, um, there's a great book called Balanced and Barefoot, um, and it's written by a physical therapist, and she goes into just the basic physical development that children, you talk the things that, that kids are missing, basic strength tests of kids today versus the 70s and 80s are dramatically, I mean, our kids are weaker physically. They can't do, they can't do pull-ups the way they could, and um, the balance, because we've we've made everything so safe. Um, I think that's another area too, with exploring nature, there's something children need to learn to assess risk for themselves. And so we need to offer them places where they can do something that's a little scary. That maybe gives us a little heart flutter, like walking over a log across a Creek because we're worried they're going to fall in and then they're going to be wet and then we have to do, you know, but that is such an important developmental phase for them. If they don't go through an adulthood, you know, they have to develop this sense of risk at some point, hopefully. And as a child, it's a great time to give them that ability. And, and one of the things that I do with kids, you just, anytime you've got a child who say wants to climb a tree we do a couple of things. One, you don't help them. So I'm never going to assist a child to do something beyond their abilities. But what I say, if they ask for help is you, you need to figure out how far you can safely go and then you stop. And if you don't feel safe, you should stop, but you can go as far as you feel strong enough to go. And that gives them this stop a minute. Okay. Do I, do I feel safe going one more branch up? Maybe I'll stay here today. Maybe tomorrow I'll try the next branch. So I think that's another aspect. Yeah. I I remember reading once that it's it's much better as parents to say, we tend to want to say, Oh, be careful, be careful instead to stop and say, pay attention. And I thought that, that communicates a little more confidence and, and it is necessary to stop and pay attention. So 
I like well, and there's a, I mean, there's such a self-discipline that's developed in that too. Um, I want to get to that next branch. I could do it if this teacher would help me up there and then I would have what I wanted, but I can't do it myself without risk. Right. So I've got to assess, maybe I need to wait. Maybe I'm not ready for that. I need to wait. I need to reconsider that. So there's just a lot of developmental aspects to having that time that they miss out on a lot. I have a question. Have you seen that development of confidence? I guess it would be um, to know how to do things like you're saying, cross a log over a creek, um, to, to be able to say, I know the names of the tree in my yard now. Have you seen that um, influence their, their capacity for confidence in other areas? Like in your own kids or, you know, can, can you talk about that? I definitely think um, confidence in your ability to decide whether you're prepared to do something is, is <laughs> you definitely can see that across the board. Um, you know, if they've learned to assess jumping across the creek and maybe not making it a few times and that, that, that definitely plays into other um, areas of life. My youngest, my eight-year-old, I will, he does that out loud. So I get to hear it. A lot of kids don't do that out loud. So he will stop in front of something and say, I'm not sure if this is safe. I'm not sure if I can do this. Maybe I can. I think I'm going to try this. I think I can do it, mom. And I'm like, I can see his whole brain process um, that. So I, I don't know if it's more confidence or if it's just a he's really able to think through the process of determining whether he should or shouldn't do something. Um, I would imagine, though, that you could use that lesson. Let's say he's writing a paragraph. He's a little older and he's writing something and it's hard. And you can say, well, you know, you just like this feat that you performed outside or whatever it was, was hard, but you did it. You know, you can do this, too. Certainly. Certainly. Yes. I mean, anytime kids have a success, right, that's a. Um, always a confidence builder and, and can equip them for, for future successes. So, and so another talking about the successes, I, I think that's a, one of the things within working with kids outside um, in the apprenticeship, we, we talk about the gap, that space between what, where we are and where we want to be. And, having a challenge that's just big enough to interest the student, but not so big that it's overwhelming. It becomes too daunting. Um, there's a, a term that uh, pedagogical teaching books use very similar to that called flow. And it's that, it's that idea that we present you know, you equip them, you offer them with challenges that are within, they're, they're big enough that they excite them, but they're not so big that they overwhelm them. And, and so that grows those successes of giving those challenges. But it also, you will see when a child is engaged in that, they become completely tuned to that. And when they're in, quote, flow, it's like the rest of the world disappears. And 
anybody who has a something they truly love doing has experienced this. For me, it was cake decorating. I used to be a, a wedding cake decorator. And when I was in the midst of creating this cake, I would just lose all track of time. And, you know, the world was just not even there for me. And hours later, but it just seemed like minutes. But I was so completely engrossed in this task because it was just that right bit of challenge for me. Um, and that, again, is that attention. I mean, we are so attending to a task. And that happens over and over outside with kids when they are when they have the chance to, to climb and explore and, and just look around. That flow is just a natural thing. They come across something and they become so engaged in it. And um, it just, it hones that. And that attention does carry over. Um, so that just, that it's like a muscle you're practicing, right? So the more you can hit that flow, you stretch that muscle. And then, yes, when you're sitting down to the paper, it's not quite as maybe engrossing, but but hopefully you can, um, you know, you can pull that muscle out of, of that attending, so. Yeah, that's beautiful. I can see that it would, it would be, um, an, an encouraging thing for parents to think about as far as being outside that, you know, maybe you're a family that's more word oriented and your kids love to write poems and stories. You can do that about things that you see outside. If you've got draw drawers and painters, that would be a way that they could engage perhaps with what, what they see. If you've got little gardeners or animal caretakers, you know, um, even, even families that love to cook. I mean, we, we're a family that loves to bake things. I can see learning how to grow some things or forage, you know, for some things that, that could be used in cooking. So yeah, it really does. Okay. Let's be corny. There's a whole world out there to explore, right? Well, and I mean, definitely with older children, uh, nature journaling and those things you're talking about are so important that, they're, they are in some way um, engaging through documentation. And, um, I, you know, when I teach that, when I did the Circe class for, for uh, middle school students on natural history, uh, we spent a lot of time just reading and looking at various types of journals um, because they're so completely unique. And Yes, everyone can come up with a way to observe and express and engage in that, that, you know, for some people, it is very factual. They want to document facts and that's who they are. And others want to paint these beautiful, um, you know, depictions of the bird they saw or whatever. Um, so I think, yeah, allowing, finding lots of different ways uh, for them to do that. But nature journaling is huge uh i think as and even when they're younger i mean my our our kids start nature journals at four and five and i mean it's just very simple something that they draw and we have them tell us what what it was and we'll write the notes on the page for them in their words whatever they want us to say and um those are really beautiful to have over the years and look back on and um i found one recently when i was we were cleaning out our attic because we're getting a new AC unit and it goes in the attic and I was cleaning out some boxes and I found our youngest's nature journal from when he was six. And it was on the trees that we lived in in that yard. And it had, it still had some of the pressed leaves. Now oh. pictures of acorns and I wrote most of the words and he um, filled in some of the blanks and he 
copied some of what I copied. It was all typical what you do with a six-year-old, but it was so great that it was up there because if it hadn't been put up there, I don't know what might've happened. He might've pitched it long ago, but we were able to look at it together and show the grandchildren. And it really is a treasure, you know, it's a good thing. I, yeah, I love being able to go back and look at some of the, the early journals and, and the things that they saw or thought about or drew and it's, um, it's beautiful. Uh, and it's, it can be a, an interesting peek into their minds. So <laughs> yeah. definitely love that. And like I said, the, I mean, I really, <laughs> I just, I'd love to give permission to all moms out there that when they're little, I mean, that you could do nothing but read stories and take them outside. And you can do them together. Take them outside and read the stories outside. And that is, that is not, that is not enough. That is above and beyond. So it, it, that is not a, a minimal. That is, that is, I think, the best, um, especially for a classical education. I just, I think, um, offer those two things to them as much as you can and uh, let them have that time because <laughs> they... Uh, and you're taking them outside with you. You're going to a park together. I mean, sometimes you just send them out, but but the yes. relationship that can be fostered when you experience something together makes me think of the book Owl Moon, which I I just love. Yeah. Beautiful picture book because it's a father daughter going out at night. It's kind of scary. It's kind of cold, and they're looking for an owl. And at the end of the book, she finds the owl, and her father reminds her, you know, when you go owling, you have to be quiet and you have to be brave and and she kind of keeps that inside. And my grandchildren have used that those lines before. You know, be brave. And um, but the the pictures are so beautiful, and the relationship with the little girl, husband or father, is so beautiful. It's the same with the yearling when Jody goes out with his father and they encounter the two the two. Oh, yeah. I think that relationship that is built around nature. I guess. I mean, I think most of us, if we think back, um, I mean, when I, like I said, I, I was formed by stories in nature. My father read to me as a child. It was my dad who did all of the reading when I was little. And, um, and it was my dad who took us outside. And it's funny now because I don't think of him as an outdoorsy kind of guy. Um, but those are the memories I have of him dragging us out in the middle of the night with a telescope to <laughs> that half the time we couldn't see anything, but I just, it's still a beautiful memory <laughs> of getting out there in the night and, um, and looking and, and those can be, I think those are just beautiful memories to give our kids to, you know, wake them up in the middle of the night sometime and take them out. My son will every now and then get up in the late at night and we do a, a night Creek walk and my husband and I will go along and we, we take a little headlamp and we walk along the creek to see if we can see frogs and uh, spiders and <laughs> all of those things. And um, I know that those are the things uh, that they will remember. And, um, I, you know, there's, there is a lot of relationship there. I agree. So definitely. Well, I know that what we've talked about today is just a tiny bit of what you did over six intensives. So when we talk mainly today about younger students, but what are some of the other topics 
that you covered in your six weeks? Um, so we spent some time on um, some basics of uh, nature journaling. Uh, we did some uh, reading of some natural history, some original sources. So looking back at, at the way people have documented and observed over time. Um, I have a couple of kind of tools <laughs> that I think of as they're kind of like the common topics, the five common topics from LTW. Um, but we, I have a three questions that um, it, they're not mine. They come from um, John Muir Laws, mm -hmm. who if you're not familiar with him and you're interested in nature and nature journaling, he is he is the go to. Um, and he, with his students, he always encourages three questions. I, what do you notice? What do you wonder? And what does it remind you of? And I use those in everything. I use those when I'm teaching literature, when I'm reading a poem. I mean, they can be used everywhere. But he created them. I mean, what do you notice? What do you? What do you wonder? Okay. And what do you? Um, what does it remind you of? So that's a great launching those tools. So a lot of comparison that happens there, a lot of analogies come out of that. Um, a lot of question asking. We talked a lot about the spirit of inquiry and the importance of being able to ask good questions. And I think the natural world presents that really well. <laughs> It, it helps us hone our question, uh, questioning, our ability to ask questions. So I have it. There's another set of questions that I, I work through that are for older students um, that really go a little deeper and, and are really a great way to start developing a sense of true scientific method and an understanding of science in the sense that it's a, a doing, an activity that you engage in. Um, those also come from John Muir Laws. So. He's a wonderful resource. So uh, within the context of the class, I taught, you know, I walked through with parents different tools like that that they could use um, with uh, older students. And of course, the three questions you can use with any any kid of any age can always be asked. What do you notice? What do you wonder? Again, that's your first question asking question. I wonder why is it brown? <laughs> Um, and then we don't answer those. We don't have to answer those. We're just provoking those questions right now for them to think on. So that was a lot of it. And uh, we did do some, we did do some uh, painting. There, there's, if, if, you, if you want to explore the nature journaling side with your kids, um, brush drawing is uh, a really great technique that's not overly intimidating. And so I walked all of the students and the, the, all the parents in the class through brush drawing exercises. We did them together during class. And <laughs> what, what is brush drawing as compared to painting? Uh, well, so it's, there's some fine differences, I guess. Partly um, there's a reduction of the use of water. Um, so it's not real watery, but it is a watercolor technique. Um, but you, it's the way you hold the brush and the strokes that you use. It enables you to, uh, the goal is to be able to accurately depict 
the shapes that we see in nature because um, again, that whole attention and observation, one of the key components of that is then is drawing and reproducing this and anyone, whether you think you're an artist or not should engage in attempting to, to, to draw if you're trying to learn about something. Mm. Um, I always use the story of uh, Louis Agassiz, the, the famous scientist who put, he had a grad student come in and he gave him a fish, a sunfish and told him study it. And so the guy spent an hour or two studying it and he's waiting for Agassiz to return. He doesn't come back. And then he comes in the next day and Agassiz is not there and the fish is still waiting for him. And he spends, I don't know, two weeks stuck studying this fish. He ends up just drawing every detail he can about it. And, and he, after about three weeks, I think Agassiz comes in and he tells him everything he's learned. And he says, yeah, that was okay. Keep looking. And <laughs> continues until he, until he comes to compare every detail of this, but it's all um, developed through just that careful observation of drawing it. So um, yeah, try being able to, to look closely, observe closely and then represent. So brush drawing, there are a couple of very inexpensive programs um, that you can pick up for that. I can uh, give you titles on those that are just give you some basic introduction that equip even the youngest kid to to get to be able to paint flowers that actually look like a flower without a whole lot of effort so it's great mm. Renee do you have any other question for Emory no I mean I just want to thank you for for being here with us and um sharing your excitement your enthusiasm with us as well it's contagious and uh I really hope that that our moms that are listening along um find something that they can very practically you've given us some good practical suggestions that we can take with us and uh, literally walk out the door and start doing so thank you for taking the time to be with us here on dwell and we wish you the best Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'd like to have you back sometime in the future and talk a little more about any other particulars that we can develop because I think it's really interesting. And, you know, I don't even have kids at home and you inspired me to get outside and take a look at things. So that makes me happy. <laughs> it's really great to see you and to get to. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And here's to home. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.